The horror of New England has become a running motif in New Hampshire native Robert Eggers' cinematic work over two films, 2015's The Witch and this season's The Lighthouse. The latter film, which won the Fapresci Prize at Cannes and the Jury Prize at the Duville Film Festival, stars Robert Pattinson and Willem Dafoe as two lighthouse keepers who keep watch at a remote and very tormentous shore point and who suffer from hallucinations in what you could say is a cabin fever situation. Eggers is here on Crew Call. I'm watching the movie, and I'm thinking, this guy, yourself and your brother, have probably gone through a lot of cabin fever. And then I looked up, you're from Lee, New Hampshire. I grew up in Vermont, in, in Brattleboro. So I'm thinking you've had your fair share of snow days. Sure, yeah. I mean, back... Uh... Back when I was a kid, when there were real winters, my brothers and I used to jump out of the second story windows into the snow uh, because it would be so, you know, high. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I grew up, we, we grew up in a setting very much like The Witch in a clabbered house uh, surrounded by white pines. And then we would vacation up to Maine uh, to the lighthouse setting. <laughs> So tell me about – tell us about how this all began. You you were working on The Witch. Max had hatched this. Yeah, Max – I was working on The Witch. No one wanted to make a movie about a bunch of pilgrims praying in the woods, uh, witch, witch or no witch. Uh, and my brother said one night that he was working on a ghost story in a lighthouse. And I was very envious because I wish I had had that idea. But when, and when he said ghost story in a lighthouse, I pictured this black and white, crusty, dusty, musty, rusty atmosphere, a boxy aspect ratio, the, very much the imagery and atmosphere of this movie. And uh, a couple months later, my bro- I asked my brother how his lighthouse movie was coming, uh, and he said it wasn't going very well. So I asked him if I could take a crack at it. So then I set out to try to find a story that could accompany this uh, this atmosphere that I uh, had imagined. Um I spent a good amount of time on it. Uh, I had some pages, uh, a lot of research, but then someone, thank you, RT features. They, they, they saw what I was trying to do and they were the first people to put money into the witch. Um, many years later, as I was developing some larger things for, for studio things that were, were things I wrote, uh, I called my brother up and I said, you know, let's write this lighthouse movie together because I think it would be wise to have something smaller in my back pocket just in case. And yet again, RT Features uh, said, yeah, we'd like to make a uh, black and white lighthouse movie about two lighthouse keepers farting. Why not? And they brought uh, New Regency and A24 uh, yet again. Uh, and, and, uh, and, and thank goodness. I mean, I can't believe this movie got made. So a much easier experience in mounting this than which, as far as the financials. Yeah, because I had because I was two two out of the three entities that worked with me before, and there was proof in in, in the pudding that like something in a stupid aspect ratio with archaic language that was horror adjacent but not actually scary could maybe find an audience. <laughs> And then uh, shooting in black and white, everyone on board, like meaning your your backers on board with that from the onset. Um, 
no. at least a back a black and white movie. No, I mean there was obviously a conversation. Can you shoot this? I mean, like, look, the screenplay says the lighthouse by Robert Eggers and Max Eggers must be photographed in black and white, thirty five millimeter negative. That's what the script says, right? But even still, uh, we had to have a big meeting. Can you please shoot the movie in in color? Is there a way that it could make sense or be better in color creatively? No. Okay. Could you please shoot it like with uh, like digitally on color and then go to black and white because it's uh, more uh, affordable? No. Could you at least shoot it on black and on color negative so that we can have a color version to sell to certain foreign territories that um, won't buy a black and white movie? No. Wow. You know, and 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 once, and, and it wasn't just no. F you like it was a discussion about why creatively it needed to be this way. And once they understood they, everyone was on board and incredibly supportive, you know, but of course they're going to ask these questions. It's their duty to do so. You know, I mean, it's a hard thing for Regency not to be able to have certain, uh, like be able to sell it to HBO and things like that. Things that they count on for financial stability. So this is a bigger, big risk for people. So, I automatically assumed when you were shooting it, because this seems to be the the standard with a lot of black and white films, that you shot in color and then DI'd it to black and white. I assume that because of the fact that George Clooney did that with Good Night and Good Luck. And the DP on that film was explaining to me that in capturing – he says if we were to shoot in literal black and white, something about – the shadows and things and just wrestling things being Here's darker. A, yeah, basically, um, color film and black and white film negatives are are different. Uh, if you're looking for the, the most amount of detail uh, in your black and white, uh, then you would want to shoot color, color film because it, it, color film is much more sophisticated. Double uh, X black and white negative, which we're using, hasn't changed since nineteen fifty since nineteen fifties, and that's something that I liked. I liked the primitive nature. I liked that there is the blacks bottom out suddenly, uh, and and it has an extreme micro contrast, and and the grain is very toothy. That's something that Jaron Blaschke, the DP, and I uh, preferred. And if we had been able to do whatever we wanted, we would have shot on orthochromatic film stock which you can't, uh, which they don't make for motion picture anymore. And basically the early, early, early cinema, early photography is all orthochromatic, which means it's sensitive uh, to, to blue light, ultraviolet light. It's not sensitive to red light. Um, so therefore anything red renders black. So the rosy hues in your, in, in a, in a Caucasian skin tone, it becomes darker. So that's why, Rob and Willem look more weathered. We can see every pore and and, and blood vessel. And uh, you know, and if you if you look at Eisenstein uh, movies, all those Russians look very tan. That's because of the orthochromatic film stock. And in Hollywood, everyone's putting white pancake makeup on their face to compensate for that film stock. And in fact, the other, one other thing that it does is it renders blues lighter. So it makes the sky our blue the, our few blue skies that we photographed like white and bleak and austere. Uh, and James Wong Howe, I believe, got his start because he was able to find a way to shoot actors with, with very light blue eyes and, and make them not look like uh, they didn't have uh, irises in the early silent days. So, so, this, so the black and white is, again, as I, as I use those words, bleak and austere, and that's what we needed for, for the story. There's nothing 
color is never going to help us out here. Robert Pattinson's been on the press junket, been saying that he found the the lighthouse station and the costumes to be very like idyllic and, and beautiful and, and romantic and like you know a double double RL commercial and uh, uh, and and there, he, there is some truth in that. Like honestly, that keeper's cottage, if you cleaned it up a bit, like would be a cool place to to vacation. Uh, but in the black and white on this primitive film stock with this orthochromatic filter that we developed to have an orthochromatic look because the film stock wasn't available. Uh, everything seems harsh and worse. That's mind blowing. That really is. Cause I thought, you know, everyone's gone digital and the whole thing about, I don't know, when I spoke to the DP of good night, good luck, they, they had convinced me, Oh no, you would never do it the old way. It's only this way, but there was a lot of detail. That's the difference. There was, you know, it was set in an office and yeah. everything was so precision-like. Like there's detail in this, but it's a different kind of detail. I mean, Ch- Manuel Le- Lebesky, Lebesky, Chivo, I'm saying Chivo like I know him, don't, never met him. But I, I of course, I admire his work. Who doesn't? Um, but when he's talking about his excitement about Alexa 65 and that we've been uh, looking at the world through dirty windows and now finally things are clear – I personally like the dirty windows, you know, and I, and, and that for, for, for my work, it creates a kind of rich atmosphere that I like, you know, the witch we shot on Alexa for financial reasons. It was a compromise that was the right compromise for that movie. But when I look at it, it feels incredibly naked to me in a way that I, troubles me. Now the sound is a huge character in this movie. Very Leone-esque. You know, where you open you open on it and you hear it and the telling of the environment. Tell me more about that. Was that written in the script? Did you find that? Did you find the sound as you went along, as you shot it? Or were there specific things in the script such as the – it's almost like a bomb, bomb. Yeah, I mean yeah. the, the foghorn was written into the script and, you know, and if you have a, a lighthouse station and there's bad weather, the foghorn is going to, to – occur when 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 there's when it's foggy <laughs> you know so like that's just going to be a, a reality of of your existence as a lighthouse keeper apparently uh, a lot of retired lighthouse keepers um would pause whenever the the timing uh, of their foghorns on their lighthouse stations would be after so they'd be at, you know retired at home watching tv having a conversation and would for the duration of when you know the the, the foghorn would 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 blast um, originally I wanted the film mix to be in mono and that then be smaller and kind of fit our boxy aspect ratio and our lenses from 1905 to 1930s. Uh, but when we were shooting in Cape Forshoe, um, and the, the relentlessness of the wind and the hugeness of the ocean, uh, and storms made me realize that we needed a much larger soundscape, as big as any Marvel movie. Um, we did still mix through an, an analog box and put the dialogue through uh, Nagras to give it a kind of analog feel. There are certain frequencies that do distort a little bit as if it were uh, analog. But... Um, but you know, you need, you need, you need that. Um, uh, the score also was going to be minimalist, but ended up being quite maximalist, maximalist, aleatoric brass. And, um, 
I didn't want strings because the the witch is so string heavy, and I kind of felt like in, in a post Johnny Greenwood film score world that that screechy string art house movie is beautiful, wonderful, effective, but it's been done quite a lot. Uh, but Mark Corvin, my composer, convinced me that some string textures were, would, would be helpful, and there's a reason why Penderecki string rises are, are a thing to create tension. We don't use, we use them sparingly, but there's a little bit of that. We did some experimental sessions with strings to try to get some other string textures that would do that without the traditional string rises. But then we, we also discovered that I did need something that would kind of acknowledge that in many ways it looks like an old movie. Uh, and so we have these Bernard Herrmann-esque low string motifs throughout the movie. Like the opening sound cue has, has that, uh, most memorably perhaps, uh, to me. Um, so it was a, it was a work in progress and, you know, to, 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 to talk about your, your good night and, and good luck, pal, uh, another thing about shooting on color stock is you have more latitude and you have room to be more specific in the DI. Uh, there's no, there's very little latitude on double X film stock. You can kind of take it here, you can take it there. So Jaron really needed to know like what he was lighting, what his exposure was, because there wasn't a lot of room for for error. And so the DI was very short because we really couldn't do too much. So we we were able to take days from the DI and put that money into making a longer sound mix because we really needed it. When you have this score that's over the top and it's m melding with the ocean and the foghorn and Willem Dafoe's flatulence, uh, and, uh, and, and you have this storm going for half the movie, while you need to hear what these guys are saying, which arguably many audiences would say, I can't understand anything they're saying, no matter how good your mix is, uh, you know, we needed to have... Uh, more time in the mix and because it's an indie movie every indie movie basically starts to run out of money in post so we were really careful to figure out where to put that money was it hard to find the film stock i yeah i think i i could be wrong about this but i'm pretty sure much to everyone's dismay that kodak had to like make more for us and then playback, how does that work? Did you have a separate video camera going there on? Was, there, there's video tap. There was a very, like you aren't, um, it's a different discipline. It's a different discipline from shooting digitally where you have, the video tap is, is what you have. Like the video tap is, to use this word again, like quite primitive. It's very, it's super contrasty. You can't see a lot of stuff. So you have to trust your eyes uh, more than the video tap. Uh, so, I mean, I prefer to sit as close to the actors as possible and the camera as, as possible with a small handheld held monitor. And I'm kind of looking at the actors and then looking down at the monitor uh, uh, in, in, in semi-infrequently. Though I was looking at some behind-the-scenes features for the Blu-ray, and it looks like I seem I seem to be pretty glued to that monitor. But but anyway, my intention is is to sort of not be. Although every once in a while, Willem Dafoe would say, "I can see you judging me. Get out of my eye line, buddy." So, uh, yeah, but it, but, and, and there, we did have playback, um, be, but it, but again, it's, it's not, it's not what we're used to. Um, and, and, and 
it just it just in general it wasn't what we're used to. I mean, maybe the the the, the film's much less the film sucks much less sensitive to light. Uh, you know, with the witch, we we lit it with with candles. Uh, here you can't the 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 the, the kerosene lamps the the flame in the kerosene lamp was a 600 watt halogen bulb on a flicker dimmer and the 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 night interiors were so blindingly bright that the the crew was often wearing sunglasses when we were when we were shooting these things it's a different it's a different discipline now how did you know that you had the like did you do dailies at the end of the day we had dailies uh that were delayed by like three or four days because we were um uh we were shooting in nova scotia and the film was being processed in in la jaron has a uh a a developer that he created for his black and white uh still photography that we wanted to use for this movie that is is much more beautiful and specific than what's in the the baths at any lab uh, for motion picture film. And we shot some, some footage and then he developed it in his bathtub and it looked quite stunning, but unfortunately you can't, uh, ensure a movie with Robert Pattinson and Willem Dafoe that is processed in the DP's bathtub, but had, had Jaron, you know, not slept and, you know, was using the, the bathtub in his hotel, we could have had dailies much, much sooner. So did you ever have to go back? Did you go and shoot something and say, Oh no, this isn't the way our lighting's off. Guys, we got to go and shoot this scene I mean, scene J- Jaren was adjusting, was adjusting the lighting through the uh, learning about uh, what, what, we, what we were doing on the fly. I mean, we did, we did tests beforehand, of course, but, 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 but one is learning. Uh, there were some – I don't mind the, a little bit of dust and chemical stain because – I, I, you know, I like the, that this movie has a kind of a handmade look, but there were a few times that the chemical stains were too extreme, uh, and uh, or the the fogging was too extreme, so we had to reshoot. A going back, going back to the original story, I rem- correct me if I'm wrong. I remember you mentioning something that you did some research. That the that these two guys did these two guys kind of loosely ex- there was a, there's a story from 1801 I think uh, from Wales that's often referred to as the Smalls Lighthouse tragedy and the the broad strokes are two lighthouse keepers both named Thomas one older one younger they're on their lighthouse station uh, a storm comes they can't get off the old one dies the young one goes crazy. Um, there's, it's more elaborate than that, but those are the things that I kept. Uh, and the fact that they were both named Thomas, one older, one younger, that, uh, made me think that this could be an interesting two-hander about identity. It's about other things in identity, but that's, that's one of them. Is, uh, is Defoe's, is Defoe's character Poseidon in any way? Was that any, any kind of inspiration or is that too much of a... I mean, if he, if, if I thought that I wouldn't tell you respect <laughs> respectfully. <laughs> and then um another another thing, are you can you expound on or is it too much of a spoiler to ask what the light what the lighthouse, what the light represents? Yeah, I mean again, respectfully, I'm not gonna tell right. you. Uh because it's look look, I, I uh I read a beautiful uh essay 
explaining everything in Lost Highway to w- w- like with complete clarity and precision broke my heart. <laughs> I don't I don't want to know the answers to these things. I want to be challenged. I want to think about stuff um, as an audience member. I mean, look, sometimes you want to watch Lost Highway. Sometimes you want to watch Mary Poppins. This movie is not Mary Poppins. Tell me about uh, getting Willem and Robert on board. I know that Willem had approached you, had seen Witch, and, you know, but but scooping up Robert Pattinson, was it, did you have to wait for him? Or, you know, usually with independent films, it's about waiting for key stars. I, I, embarrassingly, Rob kind of reached out to me too. Um, you know, I, I'm shocked that the witch found an audience, and even more shocked that two of the the its 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 ardent audience members were Defoe and Pattinson. Uh, uh, and it just kind of like this movie happened so quickly. The green light happened so quickly, and it was just luck that they were both available. Because I don't who else could possibly play these roles. Who else could possibly play these roles? Nobody. And then their rehearsal. I remember something about Willem, Willem talking about Willem required more rehearsal than Robert. Okay. So basically because of the way that Jaron and I work, uh, we need some rehearsal because the shots – not all the shots, but most of the shots are are all designed, the camera placement, the camera movement, before the actors have arrived. So the actors need to learn their blocking in relation to the camera so, so that it can feel natural once we get to set. Uh, I'm not looking for performance. I'm just looking for blocking and a sense of pace, particularly with this because there's so much dialogue that I wanted to get a sense of pace. Uh, and... Uh, Willem, however, uh, coming from theater, uh, likes to rehearse in a traditional way. He doesn't need to rehearse. He's done plenty of movies where he's improvised every line of dialogue without knowing where the camera was going to be. He doesn't need that, but, but, but understood why it was important for this. And he thinks it's fun. So Willem's performing 110% in the rehearsals, and I'm certainly not going to tell him not to. Plus, I come from theater, so it's enjoyable. Um, but, but Pattinson really wanted to keep everything, uh, a surprise to me and to Willem and to himself. Um, so, so there was a certain tension there, but it worked very well for the film because that's the characters. It's Willem Dafoe's lighthouse. He's, uh, you know, screaming and yelling at Rob and, and Rob's, uh, quiet and mysterious and trying to stay bottled up. So it worked, um, it worked very well. The only, I think the only thing that Willem actually required traditional rehearsal doing was uh, the, 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 the faux Shakespearean, faux Miltonian Ahab sea curse things. Uh, those, because they are like working with the classical text, do require a little bit of rehearsal and uh, just to kind of it just, it just it just does like if you've done classical theater you you would know what I'm saying. So Willem invited me over to his little shake shingle fisherman's cottage five minutes from uh, set, and I have fond memories of of, of doing rehearsals with him, uh, working on those 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 speeches. Now with with shooting the ocean, that tell me about that because those are some gorgeous shots. I mean, it feels like you guys took the camera straight into the water 
and you were shooting. Yeah, I mean, we broke a lot of uh, rain deflectors. Uh, there was a lot of issues with underwater cameras and bags, the the housing not matching the camera and like not dipping the techno crane at, uh, under a certain water level. It is, you know, it was uh, it was challenging. And and yes, like m- much of the most extreme weather you see in the movie is for real. And uh, we, you know, there's no CG enhancement on the waves crashing over the keeper's cottage and splashing and, and, and smacking against the lighthouse tower that was done practically uh you know but of course there is augmented practical weather too um as in special effects weather fans uh you know we we it was very windy when, when rob is walking on the cliffs to throw the chamber pot over the edge of the cliff but we had uh you know, a large movie fan to make sure that the poop, you know, would hit him in the face. Uh, and, um, and, and when Rob's taking the lifeboat out of the boat launch, like certainly our waves are uh, done in a way that's safe so that we don't lose Robert Pattinson and Willem Dafoe to a riptide. Now, um, with how did you find the point on Nova Scotia? I had read someplace. Did, did you originally want to shoot this in New England? Yeah, of course. You know, I wanted to shoot the witch in New England too. But you know, Canada is New England because New England doesn't have the kind of tax credits that make sense to shoot a movie there. Um, and uh, when uh, the first scout that I went to in Nova Scotia, uh, we didn't find what we needed, but I thought, you know, this place is full of shake shingle and clabbered fishing villages. People's mailboxes are shaped like lighthouses. There's buoys and lobster traps outside of everybody's yard. If we can't find the location here, then I just don't, I don't know. Uh, so, uh, producer Jay Van Hoy was kind of saying, you should probably just say that Nova Scotia is going to work because this green light's moving fast and we got to make some decisions here. And I, and I agreed with him. And, and so, we went to LA and said we're gonna we're gonna find it in Nova Scotia, even though we hadn't found it yet. Uh, but Sean Clark, our incredible location scout, who uh, at location manager, uh, who um, plays one of the departing wikis or lighthouse keepers in the very beginning as well, he's got a great face. Uh, he found Cape Forshoe, and Cape Forshoe was the perfect place. It was it's this outcropping of volcanic rock on the very southern tip of Nova Scotia. And it, it promised very inhospitable and punishing weather. Uh, the first time we scouted there, there was a little plaque of a, you know, the guy from the guy who's on a, a bathroom sign, you know, getting washed out to sea by a giant wave. And there were other plaques in brass memorializing people who had died on, on Cape Foreshoe. So we thought that it seemed like a pretty good spot to build our lighthouse station and our 70 foot working lighthouse tower. So did um how far was it from was it far from civilization were you Well very it had what, part of what was great about Cape Forshoe was it also had great road access. So so we were able to to build our our to build there to get crew there to have all of our trailers because there was another lighthouse that we frame out and occasionally paint out digitally that 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 was a little bit further north up the peninsula. Uh, but it was, yeah, I mean, it's a pretty remote fishing village. It's not, uh, you know, uh, I, you know, I come from rural New Hampshire and it wasn't like it was a, a surprise, but it was, but it was remote and it was, 
four hours, five hours from Halifax, I think. Maybe I'm exaggerating, but you know. And then, and then, um, did you plot plot around the? When I say plot, I mean, did you schedule your production around weather? Yeah, the, like the, was the, it like we got to shoot in December or something? Yeah, I like mean, that. we were we were shooting uh, March, April, like you know, uh, in, into spring, uh, knowing that uh, you know, April showers bring May flowers, uh, and Cape Four shoes always hell. <laughs> Uh, so that, that was, that was intentional. I mean, look, you need bad weather to tell this story. So like, what else, what else are you going to do? Um, uh, but we were also tying the schedule in knots, um, because if it was nice outside, we had to shoot interiors and, you know, uh, and there was only so many shots that we could shoot if, if without, uh, a storm. And then, so, so every time you're outside, it's an overcast, it's an overcast day or it's, or it's bad weather. Yeah. I mean, there's a couple, there's a, there's a couple, the the first day of chores for, for Rob was this, was a sunny day. But again, that double X film stock with that orthochromatic filter makes it feel more bleak and austere, even though, uh, it's, you know, it, all that we had that was, was extreme wind and, 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 uh, and, and with the sun. Were there? Did you have some some cinematic um, inspirations here, or you know that's something like when, whenever I ask a filmmaker, sometimes they're very forthcoming. Yeah, these three films or something, or like with James Mangold, before versus Ferrari, he's like, no, none. This is it. This is the original. I'm just. I mean, I think anyone who says that is like lying to some degree. Uh, but yeah, I mean, of course, like, but I'll, but I'll, but, but I'll, ha- I'll happily be cagey about my answer also, <laughs> but, but no, I think, um, like obviously with both films, I've seen the shining too many times and, uh, and Bergman's, uh, chamber pieces on, on Fura, uh, were certainly inspirational, uh, Jean Epstein's nautical films, his, his late silent and early sound films. Well, I guess some of them were made in the forties in Brittany, Jean Gremion's, uh, nautical films also in Brittany, uh, Robert Flaherty's man of Arran. Uh, these are all quite direct, distinct movies that have clear visual similarities to what I'm doing. Uh, so I guess I'm not being all that cagey. Um, and, uh, but there's a lot of stuff like I never thought about more now with this movie, but, but, but I've love him and watched his movies to death and people are often bring up more now, even though I wasn't thinking about him, but I've seen the movies so many times that how could it not find its way into some of the vocabulary. And then there are other things where it's like, I love Belatar doing a miserable movie like this, like how could you not think of Belatar? On the other hand, you're shooting a story on a rock where it never, the wind never stops. So you don't have to consciously nod to, to Belatar's uh, infinite winds because they were just a reality for the story and, and the location. And then there's other things that I, I had never seen Kiss Me Deadly, uh, embarrassingly. Ari Aster saw this movie uh, w- w- when I was 
had a pretty fine cut of it. And he said, I love the Kiss Me Deadly ending. And I said, I've never seen Kiss Me Deadly. I know it's bad. And he said, well, watch it on YouTube <laughs> because you've got a Kiss Me Deadly ending, buddy. Uh, so that's, it's always, it's always interesting. Now, did you pick up a lot of the sound in the environment, you know, trans or was it all, was it all studio made sound? Most of it was fully in studio made sounds. Uh, not, you know, uh, yeah, yeah, because we, you know, we built that place. So, um, the, the, from scratch. So things are only going to be so rusty and broken down. So there was a lot of work of trying to create sound design that was like not quite cartoony, but would certainly indicate that everything in here was, as I think I've already said, crusty, dusty, rusty, musty, and that we would, with the sound of that uh, water pump in, in the kitchen would ensure that you would know that that's going to be the worst tasting water uh, imaginable. Now, uh, how how long was produ- how long was your filming production? How long was post roughly? Uh, the principle for photography was about thirty five days. We had an additional three days question mark maybe two of shooting seagulls. Uh, and then there was one day of shooting white pines uh, floating towards Robert Pattinson. Uh, and post was, you know, it started in June. Uh, there was a short hiatus because uh, my my son was born. Uh, and, and then we were working uh, right up to the last moment that I was getting on the plane to go to Cannes in, in May. And then after Cannes, we did a little bit more uh, refining of, um, of, of, of VFX. Is, did you, did you edit any more after Cannes? No. Like, okay. No, no, no picture editing. Just like there was a couple shots that we had neglected to find like uh, lighting cables and that we wanted to erase things like that. Is there another film, you know, because this, it's it's almost like, um, well, almost like a New England trilogy. If you do a third one, you know, the witch. Oh yes, yeah. there, there there needs to be one more. Yeah, <laughs> have you have you started thinking about it? Of course, I I started writing one. <laughs> it didn't go very well, so that probably won't be the one. But one more New England horror adjacent folk story, I think, uh, should be made. Now, if I, you know, if people keep letting me make movies. Oh, you will. You're brilliant. Um, now, there was a couple of projects. There was Rasputin. Are you, wh- what's next for you? Yeah, I mean, look, I don't know what's next for me. Until I'm on set saying action, like, I don't know. Because you can name a laundry list of movies that were announced that I've talked about, and they didn't happen. Some of them got very far. Uh, you know, I had, like, every location, not every, but most locations for Nosferatu, like, dialed in. Movie didn't happen, so uh, so yeah. Like uh, right now, it's this Viking revenge movie. I I I desperately want to make it, but like uh, you know, I've I've cried before, and it can happen again. Um, tell us about. Um, I usually I usually end the interviews with an advice section to. To, to to up you're going to give me some advice. No, no. <laughs> Let me tell you <laughs> how to shoot black and white. No. Um, 
about you know for up and for up and coming filmmakers um what what do you you know you have such a brilliant style a unique style i mean i'm still the, i'm still working on it you know what, i've only made two movies please but but we're in this mess between this wrestling between theatrical and streaming does that does that impact you how does that impact you or are you are you forever the big screen uh, I'm super fortunate that right now I've been making movies that have gotten theatrical releases, and and uh, and and that's something that is important to me. Um, that said, like if I was in a position where the only way I could make a film was f- for it to be streaming, then I would do that because I'd rather like make a piece of work and share it with other human beings so we can kind of talk to each other uh, through creative work about what it is to be humans. So it's more important to do that than for it to be in a movie theater. But uh, yeah, I mean, I, I, the theatrical uh, distribution is really important and we, and we need that. Uh, It's a different, it's a different thing. I mean, this film, I don't, it doesn't work as well on a TV. It doesn't work as well without an audience. Uh, I mean, that said, like not every, you know, you know, the movie is meant to be funny and, and there's a certain irony that, uh, that some of the audience members who like have not reacted well to the film are, are fans of the witch who are coming in expecting like an austere, self-serious, humorless, uh, movie. And then when Willem Dafoe farts for the first time, they think, wait, how do you, how do you react to a serious fart? What's a serious fart? But, you know, no, the movie is supposed to be funny. <laughs> and so, therefore, uh, if you're with an audience where that first fart lands and then people can continue to enjoy the scatological humor and the other absurd black comedy in, in the movie, uh, that's much better with an audience. What's Do you, as a filmmaker, as a working filmmaker, do you try to have maybe two or three projects going so, like, if one one doesn't happen, you can move ahead with another one. Yeah, almost like I the mean, way a producer I, I, works. I think, you know, in a perfect world, it would be great. Excuse me, to just do one thing at a time. But I learned in the five years between the witch and the lighthouse that you need to have a lot of things going because stuff doesn't happen. So it's important to have a, a lot of things. Which which it took. It was hard for me to do that uh because you get i i would get obsessed with one thing but 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 i learned that i had to i had to be able to think about vampires in the morning and vikings in the afternoon or whatever i love how you stuck to your guns on your vision i mean it's what that's that's what filmmakers do but it's just there was um peter bart of uh used to be my uh, boss he's now with mm-hmm. deadline but he used to be my, my editor-in-chief at Variety, and he ran Paramount. And he did so during the time um, when Paper Moon was made. Uh, yeah. And on that film, um, the, uh, the filmmaker, he, he basically – they lied to HQ that they – you know, like HQ had heard that they, they were trying to make a black-and-white movie. And back then, it was before faxes, the way they telecommunicated it – they were like, no, no, we're shooting in color. And like it wasn't until the very end that 
the studio, you know, like yeah. the studio learned they had a black and white film on their hands. So it's really interesting. It's always it's always this. Um, it's always an edgy thing. It's it, yeah. In, I think, in this I era. think I, I, it is, but I think like um, I don't. I don't really like to do that. I don't like to. I like to be on the same page as my financiers and uh, and distributor. I don't want to be lying uh, to get what I want and and kind of pulling a fast one because I, like I want to have support and I want them to be behind the film and I don't want it to be combative. Sometimes it's combative because that's just life. But um, but I like to go in kind of saying. Like, this is what it's going to be. And if you're not really interested in that, then we probably shouldn't be doing this together. Um, otherwise, it's going to be a fight the whole time. That's not enjoyable. Uh, like, there's enough ops. Like, you know, I didn't have a lot of, uh, I didn't have studio executives and things telling me, no, you can't do that creatively. Amazing. I'm lucky. I'm lucky to have people who supported me. But you know what? There's enough obstacles like in making a, this movie. This movie with the weather and it's a two-hander and we're using like this uh, ridiculous format. I, it's so challenging and so complicated. Like I don't want to be uh, having to like additionally be pulling a fast one all the time on, on the studio to get what I want. Your crew, uh, Jaron... Um... Louise Craig, you've you've worked together for quite some time, even before. before Lin, the... Lin, Linda too, Linda Muir. Yeah. Um, tell tell me about that. How how all of you got to know each other? Well, uh, Jaron and Lou, I've known for the longest. They've they uh, and Damien Volpe. Um, Damien wasn't able to do the witch, unfortunately, because of Canadian tax incentive reasons. Um, but. Um, but yeah, we we all worked on my first short film of any merit, you know, uh, that was Poe's Telltale Heart, and um, and you know we were all trying to get each other work um, uh, and work together as much as possible. I was working in the art department usually um, throughout my twenties and, and early thirties to make a living, and if I got to be a production designer on something and there was no DP, I would try to get Jaron on board and, and vice versa. Not that we were steamrolling the directors we were working with, but we just wanted to, you know, be together. And particularly because we were, um, like trying to get the witch made, uh, if it, if it took place in the woods, like we were definitely like eager to work together so that we would have that experience. Um, and, uh, and yeah, I mean, we're, you know, we've become friends and, and uh, Craig, Craig and Linda came along, uh, during the witch, but you know, there was other movies that I thought was going to happen that we've discussed and they're all on this Viking thing, presuming that it actually comes together. Um, and it's great. Like, you know, every director says it's great to have consistent collaborators cause you have a shorthand and yada, yada, yada. And it's true. It's true. Um, you know, Jaron and I've been working together so long that I'll, I'll come up with, you know, with a shot listed scene and he'll be like, that's not you. That's not, that's not your voice. What the hell are you doing? And that's, that's great. You know, and, and Craig and Linda too, you know, you said you wanted a, a notch lapel on Willem Dafoe's 
vest, you gave me research, or so you want a peak lapel, you gave me research with a notch lapel. Like, look more carefully at your own research, Robert Eggers. Uh, so that's good to have. Excellent. Thank you. Thank Thanks you so much.